0: Would you help a stranger? I think most of us instinctively would say yes, you know, I would help a stranger. But um, aren't there other factors that might affect your decision as to help a stranger? Uh, safety, context, for example, would you help a stranger who was acting oddly in the middle of the night in a park and you were alone? Maybe not, How huh? you might be a little more cautious. You might consider your own safety. What about a nice, handsome, clean-shaven man in the middle of a crowded beach who looks like he has a broken arm and is struggling with something says, I'm so sorry, could you help me just carry this right over there to my car? You can see the car. It's right there. What do you think? What if he asked you to do that? Would you say yes or would you say no? Well, what we're going to talk about tonight, your answer to that question might very well determine your fate. Welcome to Fangs and Folklore. I'm your host, Matthew Miller, expert in all things paranormal. I'm a horror writer from the dark, haunted swamps of Louisiana, and I welcome you to my terrifying world, all things horror. Please check out my books on Amazon, beginning with book number one, Blood Feud, A Punk Rock Vampire Story. Blood Feud, A Punk Rock Vampire Story by Matthew Miller. It's series—it's volume one in a series called The Gravediggers. The Gravediggers are a punk rock band who are really bad at what they do. <laughs> And they keep coming across these horrible monsters and creatures and ghosts and demons and all sorts of fun stuff. It's horror comedy, so it's scary, but it's also funny. Volumes 1 through 4 are out now. Volume 5 is coming out any day now. And Volume 6 is the last one in the series. Should be not too long after that. So thank you for tuning in. I'm here in the studio, by the way, the basement of the uh, haunted castle in the... Well, abandoned castle, I think, it's actually haunted now. But in the middle of the haunted forest... And uh, we're here at midnight recording the show as usual. I told you last time we have some, some castle cats that have shown up. Uh, and their cats are running around here somewhere. So if you hear some noise in the background, it's either the cats or a castle ghost, which I'm not too thrilled about. And uh, again, I, re- I remind you that the wall behind me uh, is really stained. And I'm not sure what's going on there. And it really has started to bug me. So, um, yeah. Every time I come, there's more rust stains. And The other day, some rust was dripping in thick red liquid. I'm not, I'm not sure what's going on there. So we're talking this time, of course, about Ted Bundy, the serial killer. Eesh. Ted Bundy, the serial killer. He is one of the most well-known American serial killers, for sure. Uh, just about everyone's heard of Ted Bundy. And people are fascinated by him for many reasons, I think not the least of which is that he had many things going for him in his life. He was considered handsome, charming, intelligent, young. He was a law student, you know. Uh, uh, you know he had he had women he dated women I mean he, he grew up in a great family there's, there's no reason this man should have become a serial killer but he did keep that in mind for toward the uh, later on we're going to talk about that he basically threw away a good life now some of these serial killers we've looked at like uh, Albert Fish Joaquin Kroll you know they had horrible childhoods and they had you know abuse and you know it's no wonder they turned bad but this guy Ted Bundy, he had a good life. So let's think about that. What could turn someone like that? My disclaimer in the serial killer series: I am against any and all harm of anyone. Okay, I do not support serial killing. I think they're awful, but we're fascinated by them for many different reasons that we've talked about. Uh, and also, unlike serial killers from the 19th, you know, uh, 19th century or the early 20th century, we actually have tons of information about Ted Bundy. We know a lot about him. So much that I would bore you if I went over every single detail. So I'm going to touch on the important things about his life and his killing spree. Then we're going to watch some clips of his interview, and I will make some points, share some thoughts about him, and some things for you to think about also. All right, his full name was Theodore Robert Bundy. He was born November twenty-fourth, 1946, and he died January twenty-fourth, 1989. He was uh, a guy who, his modus operandi was to kidnap and rape and murder young women and even some underage girls. He also mutilated the bodies and would return to the bodies uh, to have sex with them until they were so decomposed that he couldn't anymore and that's really disgusting, isn't that? He confessed to 30 murders and, but we don't know, maybe there were more, you know? So he killed between 1974 and 1978. And he did this in seven different states. Um, his, his, real, his real victim count, we, we just don't know. So his standard MO, like I said, um, basically he was regarded as very charismatic and charming and handsome, like a lot of psychopaths are. And he was able to win the trust of his victims easily and of society. A lot of people, when, these, when he was arrested, they looked at him and said, I ah, can't be that guy. you know. <laughs> Even the police didn't think he was a suspect because, as they said, he was a clean cut, Handsome, charming law student. How could he be a killer, right? Um, he would typically approach his victims in public places. He would pretend to be uh, an authority figure, sometimes a police officer, or he would uh, pretend to be physically injured and like limping or trying to struggling to carry something and look really pitiful. And people would come up to him and you know say, "God, can I help you?" And he would act embarrassed. Oh, I'm so sorry to ask. Could you just help me carry this right there to my car? And you know, if they did. Out comes the crowbar, boom, and, you know, strangles, rapes, and mutilates. He decapitated at least 12 of those victims, cut their heads off, and kept their heads in his apartment as memories. Hmm. He actually also did break into some houses a few times. Most of the killings he did out in public where he could get the victims that way, but he did break into a few places also. He was born out of wedlock, and his father was never determined. Really, that was an issue for him. He never knew who his father was. He resented his mother because of that. But that being said, he had a stepfather and a mother who really cared about him. They were church-going people. They, you know, they really were devoted to their children. He had brothers and sisters. I think he had uh, maybe eight brothers and sisters, seven or eight brothers and sisters. Yeah. So you know, he had a good childhood. There's no question about it. is about as good as you can have. You know. Uh, so he, um, he basically, um, so he started his, his life of crime kind of early. He would wander around the neighborhood as a boy, a teenager, and, um, look into trash and find pornography. That was, and do some peeping Tom stuff too. And when he was in high school, he was arrested twice, one on burglary and, uh, auto theft, but I think nothing really came of it. When he turned 18, of course, you know, that, that, those crimes went away expunged. He actually attended the 1968 Republican National Convention uh, as a Rockefeller delegate so he was active in politics in school. He was dating uh, a girl um, and um, so she broke up with him um, and what happened was he, soon, he really resented it. Really resented it and he would never really get over that. Okay, She broke up with him and said that uh, they were living together. She said he was Immature and had no ambition, which is weird because he seemed, from the outside, it seems that he did have ambition, right? All, uh, you know, he was a good, decent student and wanted to be a law student, went to the Republican convention, but she said he didn't. He was lazy and had no ambition and immature. So he was devastated, devastated by this breakup. Um, and her name was Brooks, by the way. He was devastated by this and it, it became like a turning point for him. He resented it so much, the pain she caused him. He uh, went to college in Temple University um, So he's back in Washington in 1969 He meets another girl, Elizabeth Klipfer, and she's a single mother from Utah. She uh, He got in a relationship with her and apparently they their relationship was not great, it was kind of up and down, you know, a little violent. And I don't mean he beat her because there's no evidence that he did I just meant like, you know, arguing a lot, that kind of stuff um, so she had a daughter and apparently he, he liked the daughter, they got along, you know, uh, Ted and this, this, the girlfriend's daughter. Apparently, by all appearances, he was a good, you know, quote-unquote, dad, or at least, you know, boyfriend of the mother. Although, the girl later said that a few times he did touch her inappropriately and he would play games with her that were actually excuses for sexual touching. You've probably heard of this before, people grooming children. They'll play games, you know, touch games to see how far they can get uh, without the child saying anything. All right, now it's 1970. He uh, enrolls uh, at the U of W and he becomes a psychology major. Becomes an honor student, his professors loved him. Uh, in 1971, took a job at Seattle suicide hotline crisis center. Okay, this is where it gets interesting. The person who was next to him working at that crisis center, they would answer phone calls from people wanting to kill themselves, was named Ann Rule. And she wrote a book about it that she gradually suspected him of all these killings and actually turned him in more than once. Um, At first she she said he was kind, solicitous, and empathetic. We know that um, uh, psychopaths are not empathetic, so he was faking all that. Now, by the way, the modern term for psychopath-sociopath is antisocial personality disorder. APD—that's what we call them these days, antisocials—and we'll talk more about that in a bit. So he graduated from the University of Washington in 1972, joins a political campaign for Governor Daniel J. Evans. Ooh, I heard a door slam. I think that's a—that's a ghost up there. I don't know. There's no one else in the castle. I just heard a door slam. I it's kind of creepy. Um, yeah, he did well with his this employer, the politician. Okay. Uh, he goes back on one of these trips with his politician in 1973, gets back together with the girl Brooks, um, you know, the one who had dumped him. She couldn't believe how much of a change he had gone uh, under. You know, he was now serious. He was dedicated, a hard worker, uh, mature. Uh, he seemingly was on the, on, on the brink of a legal career or a political career. And so he starts... there's that door again. Like, I think the ghost sounds angry tonight. He continued to date... Uh, he started dating her again, and she was really impressed. He he also dated the other girl, clipfer at the same time he was dating Brooks, and neither of them knew about it. In fall of 1973, he goes to UPS Law School, and he is a law student. He discusses marriage with Brooks and started introducing her, uh, Brooks Davis, by the way, is her name, as his fiance. But everything's looking good for them. Get this: in 1974, he just ghosted her, stopped answering phone calls, letters. Finally, after a month of not hearing from him, she she gets him on the phone and says, What's going on? Why are you ghosting me? And he says, here's what he said in a calm voice. He said, Stephanie, I have no idea what you mean, and hung up. She never heard from him again. She thinks the girl, Stephanie, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Brooks, yeah. She thinks that he had planned this whole reunited relationship just to get her back for dumping him, that he had planned the whole time to for a good relationship, to ask her to marry him, and then just to ghost her. So if he really did that, that's, that's cold and calculating, isn't it? you gotta, you got to admit that. Um, so he was a good law student, except at this time, after he breaks it off with her, he begins to become less of a good student, starts skipping classes, and finally he stopped attending entirely. However, at the same time, women are starting to disappear in the Pacific Northwest. We don't know when he f- made his first kill. He's told different stories to different people, which is another sign of a of a antisocial, you know, uh, in a conversation an antisocial personality disorder person is going to say whatever they think will ingratiate them with the speaker, with the other person at any given time. They'll change their story. It doesn't, you know, truth doesn't matter. So we don't know when he started killing. He has said that he tried to kidnap a girl for the first time in 1969 in New Jersey, and he says that he killed someone first, the first kill was in 1971 in Seattle. Um, but then again, he told another psychologist that in 1969 he, carried, he killed two women in Philadelphia. So we just don't know. Uh, we just don't know when he started. Now, uh, some detectives and psychologists think he might m- may have started as a teenager, actually, and not an adult. Mm, we just don't know. So by the time he's 27 years old, he's gotten good at this. That's, that's really young, right? For... So he had mastered. He said he had mastered the skills uh, necessary to kidnap and murder women, and he got away with it over and over and over. This was before we knew about DNA profiling, so it was much easier then to get away with a crime, right? I mean, they had fingerprints, some, 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 some fingerprint data, but I don't even know if there was a national fingerprint database or anything, you know? So it was much easier for him. All right, um, so just tell you about a few of his kills, uh, not to go into all the details, but one of them, uh, January 4th, 1974, Ted Bundy snuck into the apartment of an 18-year-old girl named Karen Sparks. Uh, she was a dancer and student at University of Washington. He took a metal rod from her bed frame and bashed her over the head, sexually assaulted her, and did so with that rod, like really messed her up internally, extensive injuries. He didn't kill her, but she was unconscious for 10 days. She did survive, but you can imagine was not the same sense. Had had physical problems and psychological problems for the rest of her life. Mm. He broke into another basement, Linda Ann Healy, another University of Washington student, and he beat her unconscious, carried her away, and uh, ended up killing her. Female college student, get this. <laughs> 1974, when he was really active, female college students were disappearing at about one per month. One per month. That's a lot. So, you know, everyone knows this. The media is involved. The the police know about this. Um, He had some other kills. Um, The uh, police, you know, they're really concerned now, but they noticed that these victims all had some things in common. They were young, attractive, I guess, beauty's in the eye of the beholder, but traditionally attractive white college students, female with long hair parted in the middle. Now, that was a style in the 70s, of course, 60s and 70s. But that wasn't the only hairstyle. That's the ones he chose. And all of them looked like the girl Brooks who had dumped him. That's, you know, so he's like his lifelong um, campaign of maybe getting back at her, getting back at women that look like her. People start seeing the scenes of the crime, you know, someone's murdered. They'll say, did you see any, you know, police, did you see anything? The eyewitnesses, all of them started saying, I saw a man with his arm in a sling, like a cast or a sling, with a brown Volkswagen uh, Beetle. Started seeing those all the time. He drove a brown Volkswagen Beetle, but the police didn't put two and two together. Uh, He killed Georgianne Hawkins while she was walking home from a bar. Um, He said he knocked her unconscious with his crowbar uh, killed her. Oh, get this. So he kills. This is why I mentioned this, this murder. He kills Georgie Ann Hawkins, takes her away, dumps the body, has sex with the body, you know, the things he does. The next day, the police are combing the crime scene on their hands and knees looking for evidence. He had left there um, her earrings and one of her shoes, like right by the crime scene. He just blazingly walked into the crime scene, picked up the shoes and the earrings and walked off. Police didn't notice. To this day, police uh, can't believe that he was so bold to do that. Uh, That's another characteristic of antisocial personality that they don't believe. They think they're better and smarter than everyone else, and they don't think they're going to get caught. Okay, so we have these people reporting the Volkswagen Beetle. Um, Okay, so he does other killings. One of the killings I wanted to mention, uh, Oregon and Washington, uh, he... Okay, so he abducts two women from a crowded beach on, uh, in broad daylight. Like, not at the same time, but, uh, you know, I'm sorry, yes, yeah, so in this kill at the same time. He's wearing tennis clothes. He has his arm in the fake sling, his left arm. He does the old, can you help me carry this to my car? They do. Uh, and he kidnapped them, killed one, and made the other watch, kill the other, and raped the bodies. What's interesting is that on that beach on that day, four women before that. He had tried the trick on, and they refused. So that was what I am saying. Would you help a stranger? We all want to help strangers, but think about those four that didn't help him lived. The two that tried to be kind, good Samaritans, well, they died horribly. Um, he was hard to pin down because he changed his story all the time, like we said. Finally, the police get this, uh, the, get this description, right? It's a man, young, handsome, arm in a sling, Volkswagen Beetle, brown Volkswagen Beetle. Make a composite sketch. And uh, one of his former professors, psychology professors, recognized it said, that's Ted Bundy, reported him um, more than once. But the police, again, said, no, he's a clean-cut law student. He's not the guy. He's not our guy. And he he had no adult criminal record, right? His his, uh, teenage crimes were expunged, so he had no criminal record. So he was not a likely suspect. Um, Okay, other killings. I'm going to take you to the one... um, I want to pause for a moment here actually, Um, I'm not a psychiatrist, but when he went to law school the second time, he said, uh, here's what he said, he said, other students had something, some intellectual capacity that I did not. He found the classes incomprehensible, he said it was a great disappointment. So sometime between his first stint in law school and his second stint, something has changed within him, right? a subject he had done well in before suddenly became incomprehensible and he sees something in everyone else that he doesn't have. He called it intelligence but I wonder if it wasn't that thing in all of us that keeps us from doing, you know, from killing. Something in us. I mean, we all get angry, we all have thoughts, you know, bad thoughts from time to time, but most of us never act on them. We know it's wrong. We know there's something that stops us from doing that. He didn't have that. Other people did and He didn't and he noticed it. You know, that's kind of scary. Something was off about his brain. Uh, a new string of homicides occur. Kills a seven. Oh, get this—he kills a, uh, Melissa Ann Smith, the seventeen-year-old daughter of the police chief of uh, Salt Lake of a Salt Lake City suburb. Okay, they find her body. Uh, he went back this one and had sex with the body for seven days after she died. And I can't imagine how horrible and disgusting that would be. Um, one of his, a couple of his victims, he put on makeup and dressed them up. I wondered, was he having some kind of remorse, but that's not the, well, according to him, he said, when a girl's dead, you can make her anything you want to be, anyone you want her to be, right? Uh, let's see, I want to talk about the, um, he was so arrogant, right, so, so, so arrogant, he, he um, get to the, uh, here we go, he was arrested in 1975 by a Utah policeman, a highway patrol, Bob Hayward, and so he sees this guy driving around in a Volkswagen Beetle before the sun rises. And he sees the cop. He starts taking off Bundy at a high speed. So he gets into a police chase. Right. He gets in a wreck. They arrest him. They find these things in his car. Um, a Ski mask. A second mask of pantyhose mask. You've seen that like burglars. A crowbar. Handcuffs. A trash bag. A coil of rope. An ice pick and other things. The police thought these were burglary tools, not murder tools. Bundy explained that he's a skier. That's why he had a ski mask, which he I guess he was. Uh, he found the handcuffs, he said, in a dumpster, and I thought they were kind of cool. Everything else is just stuff from my house. And they believed him. They <laughs> let him go. Um, however, they kept him on surveillance, so they, they were starting to suspect him. So he ended up selling the car. I think when people were getting suspicious of the Volkswagen, he sold it. But the police noticed who he sold it to, and impounded it, and took it uh, By the way, the car still exists in a in crime museum And I'm going to put a picture of that museum here for you to look at That's his car right there, that's Ted Bundy's actual car um, Okay, so, he goes on trial for a kidnapping that he did I think that was um, just one of the girls he kidnapped, who got away Okay, he waived his right to a jury trial, his lawyer advised him to do that because of the negative publicity, because people were going to think he was a killer no matter what. So he found him, uh, the judge Stephen Hanson, sorry, Stuart Hanson, found him guilty of kidnapping assault. He's sentenced to 1 to 15 years in Utah prison. Mm. Uh, he, was act- <laughs> he, w- he was going to a, uh, a hearing of some sort, and he was being transported, and he was acting as his own attorney. Okay? He had a, a tendency to do that, act as his own lawyer as a law student i guess they let him do it so because of that they didn't didn't have him handcuffed or anything and he feigned the need to study at a law library so he's a prisoner okay so they take him to the law library they're not looking he jumps out the window and escapes and he was a fugitive fugitive sorry in the wilderness for about a week before he was caught again so he escaped <laughs> he uh, between jail stints he committed what is probably his most famous crime. That's the Chi Omega sorority house murders. Uh, Florida State University, in uh, on January fifteenth, nineteen seventy-eight. In I think it was late, uh, early in the morning, but like two forty-five a.m., so everyone's asleep. He breaks in the Chi Omega sorority house. He kills Margaret Bowman, twenty-one, by bashing her head in with a piece of firewood. Then he str- well, I guess he knocked her out and then strangled her with a nylon stocking. Then went into the bedroom of Lisa Levy, 20 years old, beat her, strangled her, tore off one of her nipples, bit into her butt cheek, and then sexually assaulted her with a hairspray bottle. Next door is Kathy Kleiner. He sneaks in her bedroom, beats her, breaks her jaw, but uh, I believe she survived. Then another girl, Karen Chandler, uh, he beat her also, but she survived. Um... Kleiner, the girl, one of the girls who survived, said the only reason she survived is that when he was beating her, a car somehow drove by and the lights shined through the window and it scared him off. He escaped from the sorority house, but one of them, uh, a girl named Nita Neary, saw him as he was leaving um, so she could identify him. And the bite marks on that girl's behind were, would be matched to Bundy once he was a suspect, an odontologist matched them to his mouth. Okay, so in June 1979, he goes to trial for the Chi Omega Omega murders and was found guilty. So now he is a, um, you know, a convicted murderer. During the... This is really weird. Um, (laughs) During the trial, there's this woman uh, who had testified on his behalf, a, a woman named Boone, who somehow, like, was in love with him and thought he was a great guy. During the trial, he asked... In the trial, asked her to marry him and he said the judge said what are you doing he said he quoted some Florida law saying that he could do that and the judge had to agree so they got married before the judge in court in his trial Uh he was sentenced to death by electrocution and ultimately was electrocuted um he said okay uh, he said to um, I guess one of the investigators about stealing He he said the big payoff for me was actually possessing whatever it was I had stolen. I really enjoyed having something that I had wanted and gone out and taken. He said that he wanted to totally possess his victims. That was one of his motives. Um, he said he first started killing because he didn't want to get caught. So he wanted to rape them, but he killed them just, to, just so they wouldn't have a witness, uh, you know, but later he liked the murder. And he said the ultimate quote, the ultimate possession was in fact, the taking of the life and then the physical possession of the remains. So he had this thing about possessing the women. I don't know why that would be his motive. Maybe because he lost, he was rejected by the early girl Brooks. Maybe he couldn't possess her or something. He was electrocuted in the electric chair at 7.16 a.m. on January 24th, 1989, not actually that long ago. Now, the night before his execution, Dr. James Dobson interviewed him. And I have the tape, and I would like to show you some clips and make a few points. Um... First of all, Dr. James Dobson, if you don't know, he's with a group called Focus on the Family. He's an extremely white, uh, right-wing uh, religious guy, <laughs> very religious, very right-wing, and he's extreme. He believes in beating children as punishment, things like that, and a lot of other right-wing uh, beliefs. I don't like him. I don't like what he believes, but even so, I think he does a pretty good job in this interview bringing out some things. Okay, the interview itself is a full half hour, so I can't show you the whole thing, but you can find it online. I'm going to just show you a few few clips. Uh, We know so much about his case and his crimes because he's such a recent killer, but I want to to focus a little bit on him as a person, kind of analyzing him. Because remember, at Fangs and Folklore, we like to go deeper than just the facts and the scares. We want to talk about the motivation, what all this means. I'm sorry for the poor video quality it was shot in 1989. Okay, No high definition then. Alright, so let's watch the opening. What comes to mind as you watch this? Let me show you the first clip. Ted, it is about 2.30 in the
1: afternoon. Uh, You are scheduled to be executed tomorrow morning at 7 o'clock if you don't receive another stay. What is going through your mind? What thoughts have you had in these last few days? Well, I won't kid you to say that it's something that I feel that I'm in control of or something that I've come to terms with because I haven't. It's a moment-by-moment thing. Sometimes I feel very tranquil, and other times I don't feel tranquil at all.
0: Alright, so imagine a normal, quote-unquote, nor, who's normal, but a, a, not, you know, a normal person in that situation asked that question. What would be on their mind? Okay, what's on your mind? I would imagine that anyone would feel scared. At, yeah, okay, fine. But a couple of things. First, he says he doesn't like that he's not in control of a situation. Remember, he liked to control people. Many serial killers have that motivation. And in fact, people with antisocial personality disorder have a need to control. It's a big thing. Um, Yeah. So, uh, you know, he kind of has this idea from that girl that dumped him. He has this idea he wants to control everything that scarred him for life. Okay, let's continue. Clip number two. Let's go back then to those roots. First of all,
1: you, as I understand it, were raised in what you consider to have been... A healthy home. Absolutely. You were not physically abused. You were not sexually abused. You were not emotionally abused. No. No way. I and that's part of the tragedy of this whole situation is because uh, I grew up in a wonderful home with two dedicated and loving parents. One of uh, five brothers and sisters. A home where we as, our, as children were the focus of, of my parents' lives, where we regularly attended church.
0: Here's something that separates Bundy from many other serial killers. He had a good childhood, you know, a good, decent childhood, and he admitted it. Uh, many serial killers suffered horrible abuse as children. And you kind of you, know, you kind of say, oh, I see why they might have gone wrong. He had a good, loving home, two parents, of course a stepfather, but still the father you know loved him and took care of him. This makes me wonder uh, if some people are just born wrong. We'll talk about that in a moment. Now, even from an early age, he was weird. Uh, I haven't mentioned this yet, but when he was three years old, one of his sisters woke up, found him standing over her bed with a bunch of knives around the bed on the floor. That's three years old doing that. So that at least leads me to wonder if maybe he was just born with something wrong. Okay, let's show clip number three. Come across so, pornographic books of a harder nature than uh, more of
1: a. Uh... Graphic. You might say a more explicit nature than we would encounter, let's say, in your local grocery store. And this also included such things as, let's say, detective magazines and uh, more hard Those that involve porn. violence. Then. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, I, I, and this is something I think I want to emphasize, is the, 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 the most damaging uh, uh, kinds of pornography. And again, I'm talking from personal experience. Uh, hard, real, personal experience. The most damaging kinds of pornography are those that involve violence uh, and sexual
0: violence. Now throughout this interview he is very tricky. He claims to take responsibility for his actions but goes on to blame society and pornography. Multiple times throughout the interview he makes references to uh, society and pornography as being terrible, conducive to evil, but he never at any point very clearly, straightforward, takes responsibility and calls himself bad or evil he calls pornography and society bad and evil never never admit never admits that he's the problem in this and there is some truth to hardcore pornography's you know destructive effects on minds and people like he said uh, um, people who are addicted to porn you need more and more extreme porn and he said he got so extreme he had to try it out for himself I think there's some probably some some truth to that. But he explains it more like blame, as a, you know, blaming it than giving it as a reason for his own problems. There's a very fine distinction there. All right, clip number four is, is really uh, eye-opening. Let's watch this clip.
1: Are you thinking about all those victims out there in their families well, who are so wounded, you know, years later their lives have not returned to normal. They will never return to normal. Absolutely. Are, are you carrying that load, that weight, Is the remorse there? Again, I I know that people will accuse me of being self-serving, but we're beyond that now. I mean, I'm just telling you how I feel. But through God's help, I have been able to come to the point where I... much too late, but better late than never, feel the hurt and the pain that I am responsible for.
0: He's asked point-blank, Do you feel remorse for the people you killed and the families you destroyed? Now, what do you think a normal person who did all this, again, quote-unquote normal, or someone who did truly feel remorse would do? Imagine they'd break down in tears. They'd beg for forgiveness. You know, they would say how sorry they were. But what does he do? He approaches it analytically. He explains things rather than showing emotion. This is a trait of antisocial personality. Uh, When someone does this, when they explain things rationally and factually rather than showing emotion, It indicates that they don't feel the emotion uh, for that particular thing. They're not being sincere. Everyone expresses emotion differently, you know, to a point. But anyone in that situation, killing all those people, if you felt true remorse, I can't imagine not being crying on on your knees, begging for forgiveness, right? Breaking down. Notice that he brings in the mention of God. Okay, we know that he was raised church-going people, Christian. Maybe he really did find God, but... It's much more likely for an antisocial in this case. What's more likely is that he's mentioning God because he knows that Dr. Dobson is a Christian, and he's trying to ingratiate himself to Dr. Dobson so that he can manipulate and control the situation. Almost certainly that's why he mentions God. Uh, Notice he also says that his parents focused on the, and he almost says focused on the family, and he says on their children. Focus on the family is Dr. James Dobson's group, so he's manipulating Dobson here. All right, let's show clip number five. I won't
1: pretend to, and I don't even expect them to forgive me, and I'm not asking for it. That kind of forgiveness is of God, and if they have it, they have it. If they don't, well, maybe they'll find it someday. Do you deserve the punishment the state has inflicted upon you?
0: Okay, a couple of things here. He's talking about the families of his victims forgiving him. He actually blames them and kind of insults them. Instead of begging for their forgiveness, and acknowledging, you know, like, like I don't deserve it. I just pray that they might find it in their hearts to forgive me. He says essentially that God has forgiven him and implies that the families don't have that kind of forgiveness. He says, I hope maybe one day they might find that kind of forgiveness in themselves. He turns it around on them. Do you see that, what he's doing? He says that, you know, piously hopes one day those families can find the, the, can learn to forgive me like God did. You know, maybe. No, Ted, you know, you're the one here. You're the guilty one here. You should be begging for forgiveness, but he's blaming the families for not being forgiven enough. Second, when asked if he deserves the death penalty, notice what he says there. It's one thing to be against the death penalty, like intellectually, philosophically. I myself am generally against it for different reasons, but someone with true remorse and guilt and shame for serial murder, I would imagine they would accept anything. They would say, yes, I deserve to die. I'm not fit to live in society anymore, you know? but instead of doing that he analyzes the situation and tries to explain it technically another sign of not having emotions being cold unemotional all right one last clip really short i want to show you for one specific reason specific reason show clip number 6 all right let's take a watch let's take a look at this clip
1: i think what i what i hope will come of
0: our discussion is i think society deserves to be protected from itself He says here that society needs to be protected from itself. Society needs to be protected from itself. You know, he turns it around on society. He's not the problem. Society is. Uh, You know, it's not his fault. Society made him this way. He never admits fault. He also, we don't have time to show the whole interview, but he goes on to say that there are people just like him loose right now in our cities, all over. And that's a chilling thought. Uh, The FBI estimate that um, there are probably a couple of dozen serial killers active right now in the USA. And that's a scary thought. Finally, he makes mainly the, uh, probably the only valid and sincere point in the entire interview, maybe the one genuine thing he said, that children right now are being molded into Ted Bundys by watching violent pornography. Even though he says that to blame pornography, to take you know, responsibility away from himself, I think there's some truth to that. I think there are children out there right now being made into little Ted Bundys for different reasons. Uh, What do you think about him? You know, he certainly had antisocial personality disorder. There is, by the way, no cure for APD, no cure, no medicine, no cure. There are some promising new therapeutic treatments that try to associate uh, in the mind of an APD person that when they do certain things, they have negative consequences and it brings them to them trouble in their lives. And so they kind of rationally associate, if I do this, I get this consequence. But they're never gonna feel the empathy. They're never gonna feel the guilt and the sorrow. And there's no, there's no treatment for it. Um, one last thing, and in, in deciding whether Bundy was just born wrong, someone last night directed me toward an interesting article that said that Bundy's brain was dissected and analyzed by scientists and it was perfectly normal. There was nothing physically wrong with his brain. Okay, Nothing physically wrong. It was just a normal brain. So that's something to think about. So if people are born with antisocial personality disorder, they can't feel empathy or emotion for the most part, are they truly guilty? Can we blame them? Well, sure, we can say they're guilty in a criminal sense and we can lock them away and all that, as we should, in a moral sense. But really, if they're born that way, is it their fault? Whose fault is it really if they're born that way? I'm not saying they are, and I certainly think we need to punish them, take them away from society, but if they're born without emotion or empathy? Hmm. <clears throat> Think about that for next time. I'd love to hear from you, by the way, in the comments on this YouTube video, or if you listen to the podcast on Podbean or any fine podcasting service, uh, you can email me your thoughts, matthew.miller.writer at gmail.com. I'll flash that on the screen for you, matthew.miller.writer at gmail.com. <clears throat> Think about that. I'd love to hear your thoughts about this. Are people born wrong? Is it a matter, uh, is it, uh, are they products of nature, or is it how they were raised, nurture? In Ted Bundy's case, it's hard to imagine that it was nurture because he had a good childhood. Uh, it's, then again, it's hard to imagine it's nature because he had a normal brain. Was he just purely evil? Was he just killing just for the thrills and he didn't care? I don't know. All right, so thanks for watching. If you'll excuse me now, um, I have to carry a suitcase out to my car. I hurt my arm yesterday. It's going to be hard to carry. I wonder if I could find someone to help me with it. Sleep well if you can.